2: Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
0: Civics,
2: Civics 101.
0: Is it potable or potable? I say potable. Okay. So Me do
2: we. Too. All right. Yeah. feel good about that. But
0: I also say potato. <laughs> well, let's just call the whole thing off. <laughs> Touche.
2: You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And I'm
1: Nick Capodice.
2: And on today's episode, water.
1: Yes, how and why is the government involved in delivering water in the United States?
2: Yeah, what is the infrastructure involved? What are the policies? And how to get that way.
1: Water is light.
2: Water is water. By diverting the river from its course, we have lost the Colorado Delta. Clint! To answer these questions, we spoke with James Salzman, who wrote the book Drinking Water, A History.
1: Uh, James Salzman also goes by Jim. He's a professor of environmental law at UCLA School of Law and the Bren School of the Environment at UC Santa Barbara. And he's on the National Drinking Water Advisory Committee under the EPA.
2: All right. right, let's jump All in.
1: right. Jim, welcome to Civics 101.
0: Happy to be here.
1: So I guess to start out. Can you explain to us what is water infrastructure? What are we talking about nationally?
0: Sure. The water basically has two uh, has two major major uses that we care about um, uh, from an economic perspective. And there's a third use that's important as well. Um the first is the drinking water, mm. right? we need uh, we need water to survive. Uh, and so that'd be sort of municipal water generally. And that obviously has to be treated so it's safe to drink. The second broad category uh, is agriculture. In fact, about 80% uh, of the water that we consume in the United States is used for agriculture, primarily mm. irrigation. 80%? Roughly, yeah. Wow. Yeah. The last category uh, of water that's important is what's called in-stream flow or environmental flows, mm. and that's the water actually that we keep in the river. And you ask me water that we use, and you know, why am I mentioning in-stream flows? Well, if we take out all the water and use all of it, uh, then there's no water for the fish and the, and the, uh, the aquatic ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So they all they're all part of the same mix. It's the water that we use, and ironically, the water we don't use. People talk about the infrastructure crisis with roads and with bridges. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no different than with um, than with drinking water. So let me let me give you some interesting, some interesting statistics. So there are <clears throat> over a million miles of water pipe in the country. Right, there are roughly 240,000 line breaks every year. Wow. Uh, every day, about 42 billion dollars of water is treated and moved around uh, the country. The number is inexact, but they think about six billion gallons uh, are lost to leaks. Oh my goodness! All right, so the American Waterworks Association (AWWA) they have basically they come with these estimates for what the um, investment needed. To basically uh, maintain and improve the infrastructure for the next 25 years, and their numbers, you know, come close to a trillion dollars. Wow!
1: Is this because our infrastructure is getting old and breaking, or is it because um, do we have the technology and the money to just create a new this old infrastructure?
0: Well, the technology is not that hard. It's pipes, right? The, the right. problem is, I mean, in D.C., there are some pipes that were laid right after the Civil War. Ooh. Right. Drinking water is very much out of sight, out of mind.
2: Right. Is that because it would just be totally unfeasible to replace whole systems around a municipality, for example?
0: Well, it depends how much you want to pay. Mm. So there are, get ready for this, 151,000 public water service providers in the country. Um, a small number of those provide the vast majority of the water, right? Those are the municipal water systems. But the fact is there are you know, uh, close to a hundred thousand systems that serve eight percent of the population. These are very small systems, uh, and they're poor, in mm-hmm. the sense that many of them are in poor areas or they're underfunded. It's a it's a big challenge.
1: When we're talking about drinking water, we're talking about the water that comes out of our taps. We're talking about exactly. water fountains. We're talking about all that stuff. Um, and Hannah had a story actually that's sort of related to that. I wonder if you could.
2: Yeah. So I was in the hallway filling up my water bottle at the water fountain here at the station. And someone walked by. Very virtuous. Someone walked by and he said, you know, you're really brave to be filling it up with the water fountain. We've got filtered water in the kitchen. And I thought to myself, (laughs) I know, well, I thought, you know, that's ridiculous. The water has to be safe to drink, right? It has to be potable. But then I kind of second guessed myself. I don't know for sure whether or not the government or a municipality is obligated to provide potable drinking water. Are you able to answer whether or not they are?
0: I am, I am. Drinking water is my thing. (laughs) So here's how it works. So there is a law called the Safe Drinking Water Act. It was passed in 1974. Uh, And it's a nationwide law that essentially sets the standards and obligations for how water is provided um, to any system uh, that essentially serves more than 25 people. So clearly, the, the tap water you were using. And essentially, the, the drinking water system we have in the US has sort of triple redundancy. Uh, the, most of the work is actually done locally by the water treatment plant. Okay. Uh, they're the ones who actually treat the water, make sure it gets to you. They're the ones who are testing the water uh, on a required required periodic basis. They're supervised by the state, uh, equivalent of the state EPA, who's supposed to look over them and make sure that they're actually complying with the laws. Um, and the standards, so the, the Safe Tricking Water Act, the federal EPA sort of looks over the shoulder of the state. They set what are called maximum contaminant levels for roughly 90 different classes of contaminants. Uh, and those are the standards that the local treatment plants need to meet. Uh, and so you know, the fact is that I can go anywhere in the United States uh, and drink water from the tap without being concerned about it. Uh, that certainly is not the case in many parts of the world, and frankly, 100 years ago, that wasn't the case anywhere. Now, I have to add, the Flint story is deeply disturbing uh, at a lot of levels, because essentially the triple redundancy broke down at every single level. Uh, the local producers screwed up, the state screwed up, and the EPA screwed up.
1: What is, what? how could this happen in Flint?
0: My view is that essentially the public agencies lost sight of who the public is. Uh, and there's a very disturbing email that came out Uh, from a FOIA request, public records request of the regional EPA, where one of the EPA officials said something along the lines of, I'm not sure Flint is the kind of community we want to go out on a limb for. Uh, And so really, it's a very disturbing disturbing episode, because as you mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, you don't know that the water coming out of your tap is safe to drink. I'm a drinking water expert, and I don't know. You have to trust utility to do the right thing. Uh, and in my view, you know, more than 99% of the time, that actually happens. I have a lot of faith uh, in the integrity and the performance of public utilities uh, around the country in terms of drinking water. But Flint is a very serious reminder that you have to be vigilant. Do you have any hope for the future of uh, when Flint will get
1: clean water or how that could happen?
0: Yeah, I mean, the government, the, the federal government, has pumped in tens of millions of dollars to replace the lead service lines. Um and there was all kinds of bottled water that was provided as well. Um, it's an infrastructure issue because many parts of the country have lead service lines. In fact, the, the irony uh, is that lead service lines were actually required by law in Flint until the 1980s. Uh, the, the challenge, though, is it's going to cost 20 to $30 billion to replace the lead service lines around the country. And this is part of a larger thing you'll want to talk about, which is that you know money is, is short when it comes to drinking water infrastructure.
1: So I guess now would be an okay time to get to how did we get here uh, in terms of water infrastructure nationally since we were created as a country? How did
0: we get to where we are now? Sure. So the drinking water uh, issue obviously has been of central importance ever since we've had settled cities, right? settled communities. A community is not going to last very long if people are getting sick all the time, seriously sick all right. the time from the water. So uh, the uh, approach, basically, New York City, I think, tells the best example. Settled by the Dutch, uh, the English come in, uh, and they start basically taking use of some shallow wells in this place called the Collect, which is about Thirty Second of Broadway. That got that got quite polluted um, over time as as New York City urbanized. Uh, they basically realized that the water was getting polluted and it was insufficient. In the turn of the century, you get this crazy story where Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, the Broadway stars, uh, they team up uh, and they form something called the Manhattan Company. And Aaron Burr goes up to Albany to the legislature and convinces them to give the Manhattan Company monopoly to provide pure and wholesome water to New York City. And the idea is that they're going to pipe water in from the Bronx. It turns out that Aaron Burr was a scoundrel, as, as, as comes out in, in the musical. Uh, and um, He had no intention of getting water from the Bronx. He basically just piped water in from this gross place called The Collect. Um, And instead, what he did was the charter gave him the authority to raise $2 million in funds. He wanted to start a bank without the strictures of a bank charter. And so he basically raised the $2 million and then lent it out um, at interest. Uh, And this company, over time, became the Chase Manhattan Bank.
2: So the whole water thing was a construct. It was a racket in a way. He did provide water, but it was just a way for him to ultimately create this bank.
0: That's Aaron Burr. He is a scoundrel. Yep. <laughs> and so the um, basically, 1830s, uh, the um, the state and city finally step in, in and of public water. And so essentially, by the 19th century, uh, mid-19th century, all of the major cities in the US had public water systems. Um, but even into the early, early 1900s, it's not uncommon for people to die of, of typhoid, mm. cholera, other waterborne diseases. Uh, and so the big shift uh, is with the chlorination of water okay. in the early 1900s. And that's done through uh, the, interna- the uh, Interstate Commerce Commission. They basically passed this rule that all interstate common carriers, buses, trains, ferries, have to have chlorinated water. And so basically anywhere any of these transports stopped, any of the towns, they had to have chlorinated water so they could basically provide it for the interstate carriers. Oh. And that was sort of the, the backhanded way that we got water chlorinated uh, in the US.
1: And what about water rights in the West
0: versus the East? The thing of the thing that's that, that's key in, in talking about water on the East Coast, water on the West Coast, uh, is agriculture huh. uh, in big cities. There was enough water for drinking on the west coast, but there wasn't enough water for large urbanization and large agriculture. And the story starts essentially in the mining towns in the 1840s, 1850s, where the folks who were doing the mining after the gold rush were practicing something called hydraulic mining, where they literally would get these high-powered hoses and blast away uh, whole mountainsides. So in the East Coast, the legal tradition was called riparian rights. And what it means is if you own property alongside the river or the body of water, you're a riparian holder, that gives you the right to use the water. That doesn't work with mining camps. Uh, You want the right to use the water if you're actually quite distant from the water source. And so this new system is basically created in the mining camps. It's known as prior appropriation. And the basic rule is first in time, first in right. Uh, And so... Basically, these early sort of agriculture, agricultural um, settings, farms, districts, um, they used a lot of water. And one of the downsides to prior appropriation is this notion of use it or lose it. Mm. So if you stop using as much water for a period of time after several years, your water right is reduced. Right. And so the system actually encourages inefficient mm-hmm. use of water.
2: Are we currently in that situation?
0: We are, more more or less. Um, You know, people say we're running out of water in the West. For people who study the issue, that's not really what's going on. We have a water crisis in the West, but it's a water management crisis. There's enough water to go around. The problem is we don't manage how we move it very well. We're growing alfalfa and cotton uh, in water-scarce areas, and they do it because they can.
2: What do you see as challenges to our water system, aside from the breakdown of this infrastructure itself in terms of increasing scarcity or maybe the way that we're currently treating water or how fracking may influence our water sources? What do you see as the, the major possible yeah no, It's it's an,
0: impor- it's an important question. And I think there's sort of three categories of things we need to be really um, watchful uh, for for going forward. The first one is what you mentioned, which is infrastructure. Mm-hmm. All right, we are under-investing uh, in our water infrastructure and we're paying for it. Um, The second concern uh, is contamination of source waters. You mentioned fracking. Uh, There there are other potential contaminant sources as well. Fracking is is, is a fairly complicated story, Um, and it's regulated essentially at the state level rather than the federal level. There was a um, Dick Cheney uh, lobbied for um, an amendment in 2005 that prevents the EPA effectively from regulating fracking around drinking water. Mm. Um, But it's not just fracking. That poses a challenge. There are whole classes, and this is sort of moves into the third the third category. Uh, there are whole classes of contaminants that are in drinking water, right? So any water that you drink, whether it's bottled water or or from the tap, is going to have forty to sixty different medications in them. Um, they're extremely low concentrations, right? The equivalent of an eye drop, within you know three or four Olympic swimming pools, but it's there. And, you know, if we as a society do not want to have, you know, traces of meds in our drinking water, we can get them out, but it's expensive. And the question is, is that is it worth paying for that? Mm. I mean, I do want to, to emphasize, because I, I feel like a lot of my answers <laughs> are ending with you saying, hmm, kind of a bummer, <laughs> kind of, mm. um, Don't think that way, right? The, the infrastructure that we have for drinking water in the United States is a modern marvel. Mm. Our drinking water is so much safer than it was just 100 years ago. I mean, it really is unprecedented in human history that a population of over 300 million people has access to safe drinking water. I mean, very, 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 very few people get sick uh, or seriously harmed drinking tap water in the United States. And that is a historical achievement. I mean, literally historical.
1: That was Jim Salzman, author of Drinking Water, A History.
2: Music this week comes from Broke for Free. Our
1: old friend. If you want to learn a little bit more about water and its history in the U.S., you should check out our newsletter, Extra Credit, where we dive every week into the ephemera, trivia, and historic moments related to our regular episode topics. I have a feeling this time it's going to be a lot about the Croton Aqueduct and the Collect Pond, Anna. <laughs> Sign up at <laughs> civics101podcast.org.
2: This week's episode was produced by Justine Paradise. Our staff includes Ben Henry, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Taylor Quimby. Erica Janik is our executive producer.
1: Civics 101 is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
0: Cheers to a great day and
1: this ice-cold corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. Or we can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona?
0: And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salute to the perfect day. Corona. La vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona Extra Beer imported by Corona Port Chicago, Illinois.